welcome and thanks for joining us on the podcast. Now let's join Pastor Jamie Tasker for his message. If we haven't met before, my name is Jamie. I have the great privilege of being one of the pastors on team here at Desert Life Church. And I'm so glad that you have taken time out of your Friday night to come and be in church and hear from God. I pray tonight that you don't hear from me, but you hear from him. Amen. Cool. Hey, before I get into the word tonight, though, I do um, just want to recap on a couple of things. We are currently in our mission month. And um, I've been thinking about this for some time, and I just thought, just because we are in our mission month right here, right now, it doesn't mean that the mission that God has called you and I to is limited just to the month of June. What it is, is when we take a month out of our year to focus, we pray, and we also make pledges, which we have one of these uh, influence cards here. And I want to encourage us as a church, let's be praying about what we can contribute into our mission program, the mission initiatives. Can you do that with me? Pray with your family. If you haven't got one of these cards, there should be one on every seat. Take one home after the service, put it on your fridge, pray about it. Don't leave it on your fridge though. Fill it out and bring it back to church. You'll also see our influence document here, which highlights all the mission initiatives we have going on at the moment. And uh, It will help inform you of what's happening and it also may spark an interest in you in which you can get involved or get on board, maybe go on a mission trip and be part of what God has called us to do, not just here at Desert Life Church, but abroad. Are you doing well? Why don't you turn to the person next to you? This is going to require some great skill and give them a a high three. See, I told you. You had to think about that one. Some of you still probably are. One, two... Three, three fingers. (laughs) Fantastic. I know I said it before, but are you doing well? Have you had a great week? Five, six, seven. Anyone else? Now listen, this is Friday Night Church. We expect the same on Sunday, but I want a bit of involvement from you guys. If I'm preaching bad, I don't want you to tell me. But if I'm preaching good, well, if I'm preaching bad, you just cheer anyway. (laughs) But that ain't going to happen tonight. But I want to encourage you to open your hearts, be ready to receive, be ready to give. Because, you know, the only, the amount you receive will really be determined by how much you open your heart and allow God to come in and do what he does best. Our God, he's into the life transformation business, the life-saving business. That's who he is. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I just thank you for who you are. I thank you for your word. I thank you that you speak to us through your word. God, this evening my cry is help. (laughs) I pray that we receive from you a word direct from heaven this evening. Pray you speak and minister to us, move our hearts. And as we leave this evening, I pray we walk out of here closer to you, more confident in the calling, the destiny you have over each and every person here. And everyone said, Amen. Amen. Well, tonight we continue on with our Friday night series, Theology 101. Everyone say, Theology. 
such a cool word, theology. And I just want to take a quick recap because we've been going over this the past few months. We've had a few interruptions with things like the Fink Desert Race and who had a good weekend out at Fink last week. Anyone still getting the dust out of their teeth and hair and clothes and car? Yes, I am. But, you know, as we, as we look at the word theology, it gives this common suffix, ology. And you would have heard of things like biology, sociology, physiology, or even reflexology. And that is because the suffix, it comes from the, the Greek word, ology, being logos. And we, we, we meet, oh, sorry, <coughs> we meet this in the beginning of John's gospel where he declares, in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And that Greek word logos is what we translate into the English word being word. We've also translated it into the English word where it derives from meaning logic. And we, when you look at biology, we look at the concept or the idea of life. Anthropology, tell them I'll call them back in a moment. But anthropology comes from the Greek word anthropos, meaning man or the study of mankind. Therefore, theology, ology is a study, theos is God. So studying the word of God, the idea, the concept or logic of God himself. You know, when you look at this, it's quite a key thing that we capture this whenever it comes to opening up the word of God and applying it to our lives. I, I, had a, I love what I do and the calling that God has for me as a pastor. But have you ever had anyone say to you, I'm not into that religion stuff? You know, when you think about it, classically, the study of religion, it comes from the, uh, the academic world, and it's either really from sociology or anthropology. Religion is a study of how human beings behave in a certain environment. With their practices, it's how we do things like how we worship, we, how we pray, how we live our religious life here on earth. It's human practices, whereas the study of theology is a study of God. And there's a massive difference between the two because the first one, it comes around its natural orientation, whereas the second, theology, is purely supernatural, dealing with that which is from above. And I don't know about you, but that's what I'm interested in, that which is from above, that which is from my heavenly Father, which speaks, which brings transformation into my life. Have you ever walked halfway to a conversation and not captured the whole thing? I had that happen twice this week. Once was last night when we had some of our team leaders before our Hope team meeting we were preparing a coffee in the kitchen. I walked in and the part of the conversation I heard was, I think that's really racist. And so straight away, what are you talking about? You want to know about the context that was being said. Now, the context was around uh, Chippo with her, um, the way in which she speaks. She was using uh, Google to translate something, speaking into it, a bit like Siri, and it was delivering a totally different message. But, you know, we need to be clear and understand the context of not just conversations, life, but the Word of God. Have you ever opened the Bible and wondered, what are they talking about here? You see, it's important because God, he speaks in many ways. There's many mechanisms that he speaks through. And primarily he does this, I believe, one of the key ways is through his word. And if you and I don't understand the full context of what is being said, we'll sadly miss the true meaning of the text. You see, a text text, 
without a context is a pretext. In other words, a scripture read without thought to the surrounding verses is easily misconstrued. You know, each verse, each that lies within a chapter, each chapter that's inside a book, that's inside a testament, which is inside the whole of Scripture, we need to properly pull the truth from Scripture, and it must be understood within the context of its segment that it's in. You know, when doing so, we find that each book has a specific purpose or a specific theme. The verses, they take on a broader meaning. The word starts to become alive more as you take it in its true context. Because the truth is, you and I can make the Bible read whatever we want it to read. And I don't ever want to be found in a position where I am manipulating, taking out of context the word of God, and applying it to a situation that I'm in, trying to appease myself rather than having God speak to me through his word, which may be painful for a brief period of time, but will bring about deliverance. A text without a context is a pretext. You know, the last few months we've been going over the Old Testament. The Old Testament, it's a pretty outstanding collection of books when you stop and think about it because everything points to Jesus. Everything in the Old Testament points to Jesus. It's where we kick off. But there's this problem which still exists today. You see, there's this view that we see God in the Old Testament predominantly as a wrathful God versus a loving, gracious God that we see and read of him in the New Testament. But the challenge we face is it's a false dichotomy. If you really look at the Old Testament, you have to see what it is there, that that is being accomplished in that point in time. You know, the moral law, it was given to the people with a dynamic attendance of the supernatural and the miraculous. You know, if you go to Exodus, you'll see a period with continual miracles. We see from the time of creation to Moses, from the time of the prophets of Elijah and Elisha. We move on to John the Baptist and the early church. And then there's those classic period of miracles. And with the dramatic disclosure of God was attended by such incontrovertible evidence. You know, we would see things like food falling from heaven where God would take care of his people every day. A double portion of blessing, a double blessing would come to them before the Sabbath when they would take rest. When the waters of Gertigo and the bitterness is taken away, the, the dead arise when we see people like Lazarus in the New Testament. You see, in proportion to the nature and the dramatic miracle was the rightful expectation of compliance and obedience. You see, because if you don't comply when you have such a dramatic revelation, you'll never obey no matter what happens. God, he was building himself a covenant people through whom he was going to disclose himself. But in this covenant relationship, we hear extraordinary statements such as in Isaiah where we read about the parable of the the vineyard. And he said, what more could I have done for you that I have not already done? Wherefore, when I am looking for grapes, you bring forth wild grapes. I was just reading Hosea today, and when you look at the book of Hosea, I think it has the most magnificent, magnificent, yeah, nearly made up a word there, exposition 
of the love of God. Here we have a prophet, his name's Hosea, who marries a woman by the name of Gomer, who turns out to be a prostitute. Gomer. What an interesting name, Gomer. I can see you chuckling, Jonathan Becker. But I mean, imagine being Hosea. You're, you're looking for your wife in the heart of the city and you see all these men lining up to have a period of time with your wife in a brothel just to buy her for that one hour. You know, we read he buys his wife back. Imagine that feeling of the one that you loved becoming a harlot. You know, what does God say? He says, I command you to go and love that woman, beloved of her adulterers. It's the ultimate expression of grace. So when you say it's the old, that the Old Testament is a hard concept of law and judgment, no, 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 no. We're missing the important message, the revelation and the miracle that God is expecting a response to it. And we are missing the fact that he loved them so very much. You see, in the, the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi, great name for a young fella. Or as Pastor Ben says, the Italian prophet Malachi. It begins by saying, I have loved you, and what way have you loved us? You see, tonight we're bridging the Old Testament and the New Testament together in the coming in of Christ. You see, the love of God, it's the central feature of the Old and the New Testament You know, may we never have an, an, if I can say, an ignorant perspective of the Old Testament and the New Testament. May we never have an ignorant perspective when it comes to the Bible where we miss the true message, what Jesus is speaking to you and I. His word is life. God, he's a redeemer. He's a God of love. God is grace. God is Life. Where does God place in your life? You know, so far we've, today we've looked at God, we've looked at creation. We looked at Adam and Eve who were to be priest kings, fellowshipping with God while stewarding the earth on behalf of God. They were to reign and worship. Adam and Eve, they failed. God sent Noah and recommissioned him to multiply and fill the earth. We then read about Noah's son failing. God sent Abraham with a new mandate of establishing a new epicenter, Canaan, instead of Eden. He wanted to bring about restoration. Abraham's offspring failed. We then went into exile and beyond the rejection of Christ. The prophets, they look forward to a day when the reign of God would be Restored. Now, I just want to pick up from here in relation to the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi. When we look at it, Malachi was written around 400 BC, and it follows a 1,000-year period of revelation. In other words, a 1,000-year period where God speaks through prophets, God speaking to his people. Malachi was written 400 years before John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Jesus. We read in Malachi that people would question where God is. In Malachi 1 verse 1, it says, I have loved you, says the Lord, yet you say, what way have I loved you? God says, I say this and you say that. You know, I really think that God had become a boring entity for the people in the region at that point in time. I think this is a challenge that occurs to us when, we, when worship, 
When our worship loses its worth, God can become boring to us. How does God equate when it comes to what we worship in life? I have loved you and you say, in what way have you loved us? It's that perfect tense, that present implication and past implication. I've loved you and yet you say, in what way have you loved us? We go back across the centuries, past books of the Bible, and we see God and his grace loving Abraham. He calls this man and through his loins he says, every nation of this world will be blessed. That's a pretty powerful statement and declaration to make over someone's life. He didn't deserve it, but God freely gave it. 800 BC, remember back in Hosea, who I shared about before, God took this holy man, he commanded him to marry a prostitute. Hosea, he was a prophet called to minister to the king of the northern kingdom of Israel. Gomer goes on, they have three kids. Jezreel, meaning judgment. Loamin, meaning not my people. And Lorahami, meaning not or no more mercy. Imagine living in that house and calling your kids those names. The whole household, it's spelled of brokenness. She sold herself into harlotry. Hosea, he's getting ready to deliver a message to his people while the kid's mother is selling herself on the streets. I can only imagine what the people would have been saying about her to him, taunting him. I can only imagine what the people, the Christian religious people in the church would have been saying. Hosea, how can such a holy man marry such a sinful lady like her? But, you know, I can also only imagine his reply. How can a holy God like mine love such a harlotrous people like us? You see, God's love is completely unmerited. It's completely undeserving. But yet he freely gave and continually gives. God is love. 200 years after Hosea comes a man called Ezekiel who would be a prophet to the southern kingdom of Judah. And a scripture says, Ezekiel saying, Israel, I look after you, yet you've been a harlot. There's this continual turn. God, he says, I have loved you in what way? And you say, in what way? My friend, God is love. Have we lost our love, our worship, our reverence for God? I want to encourage you to give the best of your substance, the best of your day to God. Malachi, it's a great book, ending the Old Testament. I want to encourage you, if you haven't read it before, tonight, this weekend, why don't you take out your Bible and just read it? Very short book. Following Malachi, we go into this period, what's known as the Dark Ages, We then lead on throughout history to a period of about 400 years leading up to the coming of Christ. It's also referred to as 400 silent years where God didn't speak. But you see, when I was looking at this, you see Christianity still advanced. The Babylonian Empire controlled Jerusalem for about 607 BC to 539 BC. Then the Persian Empire rose up and then they controlled Babylon for about 200 years. The Persian Empire only lasted for around 100 years before the Roman Empire came in and dominated. The Persians, they were a mighty force. 
There was this man called Alexander the Great who led a massive push, really, for global domination. The Greek language had become so dominant then that as they were progressing, so was the Greek language. As a result, the New Testament was written in Greek. The Old Testament was translated into the Greek. We read later on about a guy called Antiochus, if I say his name incorrectly, forgive me. He ruled the Seleucid Empire and we would later on see his, his descendants go on to impose regulations that Jews could not assemble for prayer. Observing for the Sabbath was forbidden. Possessions of the scriptures were illegal. Circumcision was now illegal. I think that's a pretty cool thing. Deity law is illegal. Pagan sacrifices are now mandated. Christians that were severely persecuted. Bibles were prohibited. We have this period of about 400 years and then we read about this voice coming forth. Malachi 4 verses 5 to 6, he says, Look, I am sending the prophet Elijah before the great and the dreadful day of the Lord arrives. His preaching will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of their children to their fathers. Otherwise, I will come and strike the land with a curse. He's referring to the coming of a messenger like the prophet Elijah. It's where John the Baptist starts to emerge on the scene. I don't know if you've ever looked or thought about or read about John the Baptist, but when I look at, about, at him, I read about him. He, he doesn't quite fit the bill as a messenger, an advocate for God. He, for, for starters, he, he grew up in the wilderness. There's anything wrong with that. But he wore clothes made out of camel hide. He ate locusts dipped in Honey, I just don't think he was the sort of advocate I would expect or put forward to represent the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. But then again, God does things his way, which is always for the best, rather than my way, which is really just for selfish gain. Isaiah, he early wrote that someone would come preparing the way for Jesus. John the Baptist, his father was a priest called Zechariah, his mother Elizabeth. They were both old and she couldn't have kids. In Luke verse, uh, chapter 1, verse 11, it says, When Zechariah was in the sanctuary, an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the incense altar. Zechariah was shaken and overwhelmed with fear when he saw him. But the angel said, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. God has heard your prayer. Your wife Elizabeth will give you a son, and you are to name him John. Skip down to verse 17. He will be a man with the spirit of the power of Elijah. He will prepare the people for the coming of the Lord. He will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children, and he will cause those who are rebellious to accept the wisdom of the godly. You know, John's main theme was getting people ready for Jesus' coming. When we read about John, he was a cousin of Jesus. John, he encouraged people to be baptised, hence the name John the Baptist stuck. Luke 3.16, John answered their questions by saying, I baptise you with water, but someone is coming soon who is greater than I am, so much greater that I'm not even worthy to be his slave. And untie the straps of his sandals. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. He's talking about Jesus coming. You know, when you and I, when we read about this baptism deal, it's a public demonstration of our faith 
in Jesus. You know, his main message was someone greater than me is coming and I am not worthy to untie his sandals. The coming king, the fulfillment of the Old Testament, the covenant, it was at hand. Jesus, the saviour, the Messiah, the one they had spoken about, promised about, was on his way. Prepare yourself, be ready, repent. Jesus is here. I just want to flip back a few books to the book of Matthew chapter 3 where we're going to pick up the story. Verse 13, it says, Then Jesus went from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John tried to talk him out of it. I am the one who needs to be baptized by you, he said. So why are you coming to me? But Jesus said it should be done for we must carry out all that God requires. So John agreed to baptize him. After his baptism, as Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were opened. I don't know if you picture that thought. He's gone under the water, full immersion. He's risen up as that new creation. This is the Son of God we're talking about. The Spirit of God descends on him like a dove, and the voice, a voice from heaven says, This is my dearly loved Son who brings me great joy. God is confirming the chosen one, my son, he is here. The saviour of the world is here now. John's question arises from this apparent incongruity of an inferior one baptising his superior. I mean, when you think about it, the fact that John baptising Jesus, it's totally preposterous. Jesus, he affirms God's standard of righteousness and his own will to accomplish that standard in his life. Jesus also gives approval to John's message of repentance and one of confession of sin and one that's necessary for entering the kingdom of heaven. Baptism, it's not just some good idea. This is a God idea. It sets us apart, identifying us as a follower of Jesus Christ. And there are spiritual ramifications that took place not just in that story, but in your story when you get baptised as well. I just wonder if you're here tonight, maybe you haven't been baptised. My encouragement to you is, next time we do a baptism, come and talk to me. I'd love to be a part of seeing you be baptised before the Lord and the church. Once again, we see the manifestation. As the heavens are open, we see the Spirit of God descend on Jesus like a dove. Once again, the conforming that this is the one. He is here now. You know, another illustration of the confirming of who Christ is we find is in transfiguration. The Spirit rested on Jesus confirming who he was. We read it in Matthew 17, 1 to 13. Take a note and go back to it in your own time. There's quite a bit there. But now we see Jesus, he's winding up his public ministry, which mostly took place in Galilee. And he's now about to direct his movements towards Jerusalem. Knowing full well the the suffering, the death which awaits before him, he announces it to his disciples. And before that trek to Jerusalem begins, he draws away with Peter, with James and John, and they go up a high mountain. And the four of them, though, are there, and Jesus, he is transfigured before their eyes. Well, what does that mean? When you think about the word transfigured, it comes from a portion of the Greek word metamorpho. 
You know, we have an English word which comes directly from that being metamorphosis. You know, an example you see of it is when a worm spins itself in that um, cocoon. After a season, it radically changes and comes out as a butterfly. There's a metamorphosis process that takes place. Transfiguration, it's ultimately a change and alteration of the outward form. The change which takes place in Jesus is viewed by these three disciples. When you think about it, it is nothing less than astonishing. I love how Matthew describes and it says his face, it began to shine, to radiate. There was a certain image of glory. It was as bright as the sun. God was being manifested from within him, not light bouncing off him. It's his own being touching his deity. Christ was the express image of his glory, namely, namely God. God the Father, he manifested himself through history with the Shekinah glory, with a cloud. But you see, that glory that burst out when the angels came out to announce Jesus' birth, that glory, the same glory we read in Hebrews, we find it's the brightness from the second person of the Trinity. That brightness, we finds itself evident on the glory of God. This moment, it was never forgotten by the apostles. I'm sure if you and I were there, we too would never forget that image of the glory of God radiating for those present to see. John, he recounts that the word become flesh and dwelt among us and we beheld his glory. Peter makes reference to it when he was on the mountain witnessing God's Shekinah glory. We also think of it on the road to Damascus where Paul is setting out to persecute the Christians. God blinds him with his glory. He has an encounter with God which temporarily blinded him. But the glory of God was on display for Paul to see. See, the promise for our future is in heaven as we read in Revelation chapter 21, verses 22 to 23. John, he describes a city without a sun, but yet it is bright. It's illuminated by the glory of God. You see, the Lamb is its light. Jesus is the light. Where the glory of God is revealed, who needs a light bulb? Who needs a floodlight? See, you can be going through a very challenging circumstance that may seem dark, but if Christ is in you, the light of the world is radiating through you. When the glory of God reveals himself, who needs a light bulb? It's a taste that Peter, James, and John had. If you turn to me, I will illuminate your path, he says. Are you living in darkness? Do you need direction when it comes to your Life. The second illustration we have here is Jesus' clothes, they were as white as light. You know, you and I, we can't dye our clothes any whiter than that. When the glory of God was revealed, Jesus, he was shining white, pure. What color is a lemon? Yellow. If you were in, if we were in this room holding a lemon... Now this is, you've got to stay with me, this is deep teaching, all right? And we turn out the lights and you're holding a lemon. What colour is that lemon? <laughs> well, you would assume it's still yellow, even though it's dark, correct? 
But you see, colour, it's not a primary quality, it's a secondary quality. It's not something that lives inside an object, but that colour we experience in this world is from the shining of the sun. You know, and the the colours we see are the colour which are not absorbed, but rather reflected like a rainbow from the sun. So really, everything in itself could be seen as colourless. And if there's an abstract of colour, all we have is black. And if you have the reflection of all colour, it's absolutely perfectly white. So when you see in transfiguration on Jesus the light and the colour which is emanating in Christ and in his clothes, it's demonstrating this, shining with pure, unblemished whiteness. Our God is light. They see Moses and Elijah come and talk to them and they are having a conversation with Jesus. You know, in order to fulfill the law, in order to fulfill the prophets, Jesus, he must suffer and die. But this was more than Peter can handle. He wanted to stay there. They they requested, shall we build tabernacles here? One for Moses, one for Elijah, and one for Jesus. I mean, who wouldn't want to stay in the presence of God in that setting? I know I sure would. Let's just hang out on this mountain. But we see, we read on, a bright cloud overshadowed them. It engulfed them, and a voice came upon them, saying, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear him, listen to him. And when the disciples heard him, they fell to their face as they were greatly afraid. Firstly, they saw the glory of God. Secondly, they heard the voice of God. They fell on their faces because they were overcome with terror. But Jesus, he walks over to them, he touches them, and he says, it's okay. Stand up. There's no need to be afraid. I am with you. When they lifted their eyes, Moses and Elijah were gone. The the metamorphosis was gone, and they saw Jesus as he was there with them on their earthly ministry. You know, how would you like to have seen that? I can just imagine that image. You know, one day when we go to heaven... We're going to see God in all his glory, all his majesty, all his brightness. It will radiate everywhere for all to see. Pretty powerful. There'll be no more veil. There'll be no more concealment. That white light, the glory of God will be there for all to see. I just want to pause on that thought, though, just for a brief moment. We've captured a glimpse of that which is yet to come. To come to those who believe, who has accepted Jesus as their personal Lord and Saviour. But God also came and he preached not only about that which is to come, but he also preached about the kingdom of heaven, which is in the here and the now. You know, I talked to you before about how we can miss things in translation. We can miss things, especially when it goes from one language to another. And Jesus, he talks about an age that is to come, but he also addresses this age. You see, my friend, God's intention would be revealed and fulfilled. The new creation and the new creation people would fill the earth and live under God's reign. But we have a thing where the Hebrew Bible, it was translated into Greek. It, the phrase, hai olam, was rendered zoe aeneon. Oh, excuse me, that's a tongue twister. The Greek phrase is what we see whenever we hear and read the word eternal life in the Bible. Now, the fact that it goes without an end, it really isn't such a bad translation. 
but when we look at it, it really does need some qualification because the literal translation also means the life of this age. It still communicates the Hebrew language mindset two ways that after God's kingdom come and his reign is established concretely in the cosmos again, the holy ones will be granted the life of the age. A life where in all presence, justice, righteousness and love of God is characteristic. God, he describes of, God's good descriptions of this can be found when we read the Old Testament prophets, where we look at books like Isaiah, when we read Isaiah chapter 2, Isaiah chapter 7, Isaiah chapter 9 and 65 verse 17. They all paint a poetic description of what God's reign looks like when it invades the earth, is purely down the earth, (coughs) sorry, down to the earth, time and space ramifications, excuse me. Jesus, he startingly redefines and revitalizes that every concept of this rule of God when he cheerfully announces it is here now. He says that those who believe in him now will receive the life of the age. John's gospel, 37 uh, times it declares that the life of the age to come is now available to those who follow Jesus. The life of the age is available for you right here, right now. You see, what people thought was something that was once future in the future is now here in the present. What people said would someday or one day happen, Jesus says it's here available for you today in the here and the now. You see, this is so much more than a timeless, unending existence. It's the invasion of the now by the future of God. You see, through the people who inhabit two realms simultaneously, and they hold them together, being the present age we live in and the future age we exist, where you and I, where we bring the blessing, the expression of God of the future into the here and now, and we're called to outwork it into our community's life. This message of hope, this message of life that God gave us is not something of, that is to be kept to self or something that is pertinent just to the future. It's also applicable to the here and now. I want to read you a quote from George Eldon Ladd. It says, Life is future. And yet in the Gospel of John, we find such a statement as this. I come that they may have life and that they may have it abundantly. John 10.10. Jesus came to give us life today, not only in the future at the end of the age, but now. Somehow the life of the age to come has come to us here and now while we are still in our mortal bodies living in the evil age. In these verses about eternal life, we find the same structure which we have discovered in our study of the two ages and the kingdom of God. The age to come belongs to the future, and yet the powers of the age to come have entered into the present evil age. The kingdom of God belongs to the future, and yet the blessings of the kingdom of God have entered into the present age to deliver men from bondage to Satan and sin. Eternal life belongs to the kingdom of God, to the age to come. But it too has entered into the present evil age that many may experience eternal life in the midst of death and decay. We enter into this experience of life by the new birth, by being born again. 
You know, the fulfillment of the Old Testament had finally come. God, he manifested himself throughout the Old Testament. And the good news is, is God, he still reveals himself to you and I today. His form of manifestation may have changed from one of an Old Testament way to being moved or manifested to you and I through his Holy Spirit in the here and now. God's presence, he is here, he is still at work. The kingdom of God is both the yet to come, but is also the here and now. My challenge for you tonight is, is how will you apply it to your life? How will you live that abundant life as we read about from John 10.10 and take this message to the very spheres, the community groups, the houses we live in, our workplaces, so that we can magnify and show God's glory through everything we live, do. We hope you have been encouraged by this message. For more information, check out our website at desertlifechurch.org.